1: Hello, I'm your host Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Matt Wolfe. Matt's an award-winning filmmaker in New York. His films include Wild Combination, about the avant-garde cellist and disco producer Arthur Russell, and Teenage, about the birth of youth culture. His most recent shorts include Bayard and Me, about the civil rights leader Bayard Rustin, HBO's It's Me, Hillary, about the Eloise illustrator Hillary Knight, and The Face of AIDS, for Time Magazine, he's a Guggenheim Fellow. Welcome, Matt.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm very happy to have you. Um, as you know, but I'll share with the listeners. I uh, found my way to you because uh, one of the many streams I get um, featured your your film about Bayard Rustin, who was. Um, Important in an interesting way in my life because my dad was in the civil rights movement. My childhood, he was gone a lot. Actually, uh, we lived in the west; he was in the east, marching and and doing all of that. And he knew Bayard Rustin. So, That's so fascinating.
2: Um, I I met somebody at a party last week who said her uncle's life partner lost his virginity to Bayard Rustin.
1: Oh my gosh!
2: <laughs> kind of like you know. It comes full circle for a lot of people
1: it does and and what's interesting too, is that um you know I often wondered my dad was a minister, as were many people who went to the south to to fight for the rights of African American people. Um, at, at that time in in his church, um there was a real commitment to social justice and um I believe that knowing people like Bayard contributed to my father's ability to accept my sexuality. That Um, makes sense, for sure. That he had known people who he respected and loved and cared for who were gay. And so it was not as as far a leap as it was for some people. Mm Mm-hmm. It was no. It was a known world to him in some way, and so I'm that's, I'm very th- yeah, thankful that's, that's for really for people history. like Bayard Rustin in that way, um, who's who did, I think, would you agree, did see, although he felt he had to put it second, did see gay rights as a civil rights issue.
2: I mean, I think at the time that he was doing organizing, it was fairly inconceivable that um, there would be an intersection between this, the civil rights movement uh, for racial and economic justice and um, gay rights. But it wasn't long after that the Stonewall Rebellion happened. And I think those those two social histories started to intersect. You,
1: you know, later on in the hour to hour, I want to talk just about your your really um, deep work with with people's legacies, um, you know, people who died and and other people who continue to to mark them in the world. But just a little more about um, this particular film that brought me to you. Um, uh, the the man who really is the heart of the film, his partner uh, Walter Nagel. Um, I feel really captured, you know, I'm 63, so um, when I came out at 17, uh, there was absolutely no thought in anyone's head. There was a gay rights movement, but I don't think anyone saw it possible that we would have some of the rights we do now have, um, threatened though they may be. and they kind of embody that in the sense that they were trying to find a way to to solidify their relationship without um, the benefit of a lot of the legal structures for that. Can you talk about that, Sam? I'm sorry. What do you mean exactly? <laughs> I mean, in terms of Bayard adopting Walter, that oh. was... There, That yeah, was their I mean, I these- attempt to um, find a way to protect themselves legally in a situation where we didn't have protections.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the rights that, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people have now were just inconceivable. Um, you know, not that long ago in, in the 1980s, for instance, when Bayard and Walter were trying to legalize their relationship, and I think it, you know, was a by any means necessary kind of attitude is um, these are my needs and these are legal ways that we can achieve them. Um, so I think, you know, equality is at the center of, um, obtaining civil rights. And for a long time, people were figuring out ways to do that, even if it wasn't within the kind of mainstream.
1: Well, of course, the, one of the experiences for myself that intersects with is, um, choosing to have children as an out person mm-hmm. and the position that, that put, um, those of us that were not legal as parents mm-hmm. so for instance my first child who I had with another woman and there was no way for her to have any legal rights and that was mm-hmm. a real impact a very oh my
2: gosh yeah
1: I'm sure. a very huge impact on the level of trust and you know a lot of emotional issues uh, mm-hmm. that went on in that relationship and then later I had a child uh, and another woman gave birth, and I actually lost that child for oh, many, many wow. years. So it's a, it's such a personal impact. I'm not sure people quite understand that. Uh,
2: yeah, totally. And I think because gay culture has its history within these kind of clever workarounds and kind of redefining or making new rules for for relationships um you know some people reject some of the more conventional established institutions like marriage so as much as this is part of a kind of um linear struggle that that resolves itself around the legalization of gay marriage i think it's um you know the the idea that one can work around the system can be fundamental to gay culture for many people as well
1: absolutely and and that comes out in ways such as um uh you know we have we had a wedding before uh, my my wife now uh after my first wife died i met and married my second we've been married almost 20 years and um we had a ceremony in 1998. We didn't think we'd ever be able to legally marry, but we had a a 200 person wedding, you know, that, yeah,
2: (laughs) it's interesting. My partner and I, who I've, I've been with for 13 years, um, we, we never wanted to get married and, and gay marriage was legalized and we were domestic partners and didn't feel, um, compelled to get married. And, um, on our 10-year anniversary, we had a large party that um, it was interesting. Some people called it a wedding, um, but we called it an anniversary party, and we kind of redefined what that meant for us, and it was about um, toasts and people giving speeches and recognizing our relationship and the work that had gone into it, but, um, you know, it didn't it didn't have the decorum of a wedding, and it was, you know, something that we intentionally thought of not as a wedding.
1: Well, that's, that's an interesting... Um point because uh to me um freedom means freedom to do or to not do exactly yeah um that came a lot came up a lot for me when i was thinking about having kids you know mm-hmm. that uh i could be a parent or i could not be a parent <laughs> you know that it was exactly. that was something yeah. i had to fight hard for the for the sense that i had a choice Uh, Because at that point, there was a lot of guilt associated with having children intentionally as a lesbian. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, How can you do that to your kids kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there is that sense of, yes, it also does mean the freedom to not do it. Um, yeah, and, totally. And make your own own way in that sense. I yeah, or found- to
2: to resist the kind of um, you know dominant culture's expectation that we all get married. I think um, not everybody wants to get married, and I think if you're heterosexual, or specifically if you're a woman, it's to do to not get married is so transgressive. Um, for gay people, that's not really that hasn't been the case. Um, but it was interesting for me to see how how many people were. You know, surprised or um, to some extent even frustrated that we weren't getting married.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A kind of reverse expectation. (laughs) But I did notice. Yeah, totally. I
2: mean, you know.
1: You know, I noticed a lot of people in my generation who had. Carried on extreme, very long relationships uh, with, with no right to be married. Um, my cousin, for instance, had been with her partner, I think, 30 years uh, when marriage was legalized. And when it got legalized in California, I said, hey, Karen, what do you think? You think you'll come out and get married? And she said, I won't do it until it's legal in my state, which was Kentucky,
2: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
1: it was kind of a joke, like, ha-ha, that'll never happen. And then, yeah, no, huh? yeah. and then it did, and they did get married. I think there's a lot of people never thought they would want to, but there there are some things that do start to impact at an older age that I think has... Yeah,
2: I've noticed that people I wouldn't have expected to get married now are. Not, they didn't get married right when it was legalized. They decided to do it, you know, some years later. And um, it's, you know, when I was growing up, I very much wasn't expecting to get married or have kids. And it's nice to have that option, but um, those expectations never shifted for me. But it's interesting to think about the true longevity of a relationship and also end of life issues and the meaning of getting married, you know, when your time is, is limited.
1: Well, it, that's interesting, too, because um, uh, one thing I think ha- was an advantage, <laughs> I say this advisedly, <laughs> of not having that right, <laughs> is that I, I thought a lot about what it meant to me. Uh, I really, uh, why did why did I want to do it or not do it? What did it matter? You know, all those kinds of questions, which uh, it's a lot not of a casual. Don't ask those questions. That's right, and I think those are good questions for a hundred percent of the people who do it or don't do it. You know, exactly. that there's sort of what does it mean to me? Why would I do it? Why wouldn't I? How do I define it? Um, as a as a person who works with couples in my counseling profession, a lot, um, I think that question gets asked too seldom and, you know, has some consequences.
2: Yeah, totally. I
1: agree with so, you. So circling back around to to Bayard and Walter, um, that's going a long distance to to have, and they did have quite an age difference, but still that wasn't the heart of why they chose to do that. It was things like uh, Walter being able to stay in their apartment and mm-hmm. and a lot of um very much legal protection kinds of things. But what a weird experience to have well, to be the, the social
2: worker. Kind of, I think the age difference precipitated that because they knew it was like estate planning a little bit, you know? It's like they knew that, you know, uh, that Bayard was going to die before Walter, most certainly. So um, I think <laughs> Yeah, Bayard was laying the groundwork to protect Walter because, you know, they lived in a income-restricted um, apartment building with a lease and Bayard's name and all sorts of things that, you know, those kinds of, um, those kinds of benefits and rights aren't, aren't automatically transferred to, to gay people who aren't married.
1: For sure. And, and maybe even to heterosexual people who are not married, It's true.
2: You know, what's interesting is once gay marriage was legalized, um, people often were not able to obtain their health insurance benefits unless they got married. So they were kind of forced to marry. And I was talking to a woman who's straight and who chose not to get married and was very adamant that she didn't want to be married to her partner and um she had to get married for health insurance when she got a certain job so it's it's interesting how some institutions when the laws changed kind of assumed that any long-term couple would would choose to be married in the conventional sense just to obtain those equal benefits and rights
1: that's interesting because in California they they maintain domestic partnership mm-hmm. and so that covers people in terms of uh, heterosexual or lgbtq uh, it protects here, everyone.
2: But even my union, the director's union, I believe, even though I'm a domestic partner, I'd have to get married to share. They don't accept domestic partnerships now that marriage is an option for same-sex couples. That's it's just, interesting. It's a, I think these little kind of bureaucratic nuances tell us a lot about our culture's expectations for um, marriage and the significance of that institution in terms of the fabric of our society.
1: Right, for sure. And uh, and for all of us maneuvering that or navigating it, um, it does sort of push in a direction. You know, you kind of have to more actively choose not to participate in that than to participate in, in it in some ways. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, totally.
1: So this film is really, to me, one example of, of what, Seems important to you to work with, which I'd like to move to talking to next, which is kind of, um, I guess, as a broad category, les- legacy, or how people are remembered, perhaps? Would mm-hmm. that be fair to say?
2: Uh, for me, I would the the words I use are hidden histories. So, mm. you know, it's often, it does have to do with legacy, but it's more about people who are flying under the radar, or histories, um, not just stories, but real cultural histories that are unfamiliar, um, even if they intersect with kind of um, well-known figures. So, you know, this example of intergenerational gay adoption is, is really a hidden history. It's not something most people have heard of or know about.
1: And, and also, I guess, um, Bayard Rustin organizing the March on Washington, or the, the part he played, and people that were very deep in the civil rights movement know about that, but maybe not the general public, so that's another example, isn't it?
2: Yeah, like, I knew who he was, and I think certain political gay people know who he is, but, um, yeah, he's an overlooked figure, and, and the significance of his political career is a kind of hidden history as well.
1: We're almost ready for a break, but I, I would like to come back and talk about how that intersects with being, you know, you're, you're um, part of the LGBTQ community, I am. And I have the idea that sometimes um, thinking out of, outside of the box comes a little more naturally to people who've already had to come to terms with being outside of the box. And I'm very curious, (laughs) curious your thoughts on that. So when we get back from our break, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about out of the box.
2: Sounds good.
1: All right. And, uh, yes, you can, during the break, you can go find both of us online. Uh, you can look for me at my website, weatheringgrief.com, or on the Good Grief Host page. And you can find Matt Wolf at mattwolf.info and it's M-A-T-T-W-O-L-F dot info. Back soon. <laughs>
3: of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media.
3: Can you keep up?
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back. This is host Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with the filmmaker Matt Wolf. And Matt, before the break, we were—I I mentioned that I have the thought that uh, those of us who have had to um, figure ourselves out in terms of sexuality or gender identification, too, I guess, maybe are a little favored for um, being considering other ways of living that are a bit out of the box being being artists or creators or, you know, um, that sort of thing. And you seem to agree. I want to hear what your thoughts are about that because that's those are the sorts of people you seem drawn to, to make films about, people who yeah, think I mean, kind I of un- un- I, tra- non-traditionally.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily rule breakers that I'm drawn to, but, I mean, just on a personal level, I think so much about being – Creative is about um, you know recognizing what the rules are and what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do and um, breaking away from that and ignoring that. And I do think part of being gay for me is about um, not accepting the world um, as it is and and kind of um, taking it on on my own terms. Um, And I think that's true of a lot of gay people of, of different... I mean, I'm 35, so I'm of a younger generation, but I think generations for me who I'm definitely inspired by completely reimagined the world on their own terms because of their status as outsiders um, who you know largely gravitated to those bohemian epicenters and nucleuses and big cities on the coast so um, yeah I mean the people I make films about share those values whether they're um, you know queer avant-garde artists or, you know, I'm making a film about a woman who recorded television twenty four hours a day for thirty years as a kind of activism. So mm-hmm. you know she's she was making her own rules too. so <laughs> for um, sure, I think yeah, it's I'm she was ahead interested.
1: of her time because they're trying to figure out ways to do that social media wise these days mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. as a general conversation. Huh?
2: Yeah, yeah, As someone who's trying to reestablish rules in the way that I think about the world and what I do in the world, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely drawn towards others who do that as well, both historically and in, in the present.
1: Mm. And then, of course, from the point of view of this show, um, you know, transformation as a result of loss uh, and oppression being a form of loss. I do think that when you have to deal with difficult realities, sometimes creativity comes out of that. Uh, yeah,
2: totally.
1: So, um, one new thought I had kind of interacting with your films and thinking about these ideas is, I don't know if it was entirely new, but... You know, crystallized maybe is that um, I've thought many times about all of the incredible art that was lost because of AIDS, Mm -hmm. and and I've mostly experienced that as um, this deep uh, kind of gap in in the world possibilities. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But when I was uh, watching your films and and such, I was thinking. Wait, there's also the things that have come out of those losses, um, like the quilt, like your films, like a lot of other things that wouldn't exist without those losses and um, it was a little surprising to me I'd never looked at that side of it before when it comes Mm -hmm. to AIDS maybe because I lived in you know the San Francisco Bay Area from 1971 and I still live there so Mm -hmm. watching that happen so intimately was um, so 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 painful Mm -hmm. um, that it's sometimes hard to uh, see the outgrowth, even for me.
2: It's funny. And I wonder I'm, what
1: you thought about that.
2: I'm in my office right now, um, sitting in my chair, and I have a bulletin board right next to my desk, and I was counting the amount of pictures there are of people who died of AIDS who are artists. Not that it's funny, but it is such a preoccupation for me um, mm-hmm. that I've thought about a lot over the years. Um, and like you were saying, it's It is so much of this um, generational gap that um, I became cognizant of as a queer teenager in San Jose, California. And then as a college student, I began to kind of deepen my engagement with that, specifically because of the artist David Wanarovich, who um, was a prolific visual artist and writer, but also an activist um, targeted by the culture wars with the National Endowment of the Arts. Um, but just a, a kind of rageful, um, articulate, and um, visceral presence in uh, the New York art Art world and um, activist community, and he died of AIDS in 1992. And in college, um, I became really, uh, just really obsessed with him. Um, and I've made work about him. And um, you know, I it was the first time I ever went to an archive was to look at his materials, and. Um, you know, it wasn't just papers. They had art objects and even this thing called the magic box, which he kept under his bed that had these kind of totems um, that were iconographic of stuff in his work. And, you know, it was really this moment where, as a sophomore in college, I recognized, like, you know, people can be understood um, or, or um, yeah, people can be understood through the artifacts that they leave behind and that there's this body of knowledge um and this um, gap of culture that is uh, it, it is because of the losses of AIDS and that you know how can I make sense of that and fill in those gaps with the artifacts that have been left behind and for years that's been a kind of project that I'm engaged with and I think a lot of gay people of my generation are preoccupied with that as well and mm. on and off I make these films that deal with that um, and then I'm like I need to do something else. I can't keep coming back to this. But as I look at this this bulletin board in my office, it's not not just because I know that that's something I can do. It's something that I feel compelled to keep doing. Um, Now, you know, uh, like 10 years into my career, I'm still kind of thinking about that and doing stuff around that.
1: Well, I guess I would say that it also seems to infiltrate other work that you do that, 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 that isn't about AIDS or or uh, queer community. Uh, there's there's a sort of similar quality to some of the other things that I that I um, watched that you've done of kind of um, I don't know catch, capturing a person's essence.
2: Yeah, or also, I mean, for me, it's often about archive. Like, I get really inspired looking at material from the past that's not known. You know, back to that idea of hidden histories. Um, You know, I made a film about, a historical film about the invention of the idea of teenagers. And, you know, um, called... thousands of hours of archival footage from libraries and archives from around the world and was really piecing together the evolution of this kind of archetype through material. But in a way, like so much of my relationship to that material isn't nostalgic. It's about looking at something from the past and trying to activate it in the present and try to see it in a new way or try to contextualize it in a way that speaks to the present moment. And for whatever reason, when I started making these films that pay tribute to artists who died of AIDS, mostly queer artists from uh, the generation before mine, um, so much about that spoke to the present moment in terms of my experience of gay culture. And, you know, earlier we were talking about gay marriage. I think, you know, uh, for a lot of us, the um, the emergence of gay marriage was, of course, a positive thing for civil rights, but it also signaled the mainstreaming of gay culture. Um, and I think for those reasons, myself and a lot of my peers in the community have have definitely looked backwards to try to understand, um, where, where that mainstreaming of our culture came from um, to some extent as gay culture becomes more mainstream we assimilate and I think it's really meaningful to um, you know forge a meaningful and deeper connection to um, the culture that I come from, the people who came before me
1: That really impacts me because it's a in my experience, a relatively, maybe not in your circle, but it's, it's relatively uh, uncommon uh, with people I meet that are much, much, much younger. Um, for instance, several of my nieces um, got involved with women and never came to my wife and I to talk to us. Yeah, I thought that was totally really true. curious. I was, I was so wow. <laughs> the
2: categories are much more fluid for for millennials, but also the the experience of being in a same-sex relationship is so much more normalized. I mean, I don't think that's true for everybody. It's really a privilege for that to be for true. Sure. I think a lot of people. Well, know that's not true. for
1: them, for them, certainly, uh, my wife, uh, you know, raised them. And she yeah. was there their whole childhood. It's just a normal... Th- they they weren't alive when it was hard. By the time but they came along, she was accepted. It's and interesting. so I'm, I'm I, I really... I, I had to give it a lot of thought, though, because it, it seemed... I mean, if I had known that I had a relative who was a lesbian, boy, I would have been calling him up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because true. they're... It was yeah. so isolating, and and nobody in your family was, and all of this, and I do think that's different. Uh, that
2: is absolutely for different. them, which
1: which has an up and a down, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, the up being they they didn't feel that need.
2: For me, I'm Jewish, and I was part of this group that was raising the question. I was invited to participate in conversations with a group that was raising the question, like, is there. Is there a point to still, for secular or skeptical people who aren't religious, is there a point to kind of reimagine what Judaism might be? And I was just like, oh, I don't really want to do that. (laughs) And then, then... You know, someone made the point that, you know, generations after the war and after people have immigrated to the U.S., Jewish culture has been assimilated to such an extent that it's like we think of, you know, Bagels and Larry David. And that's so shallow and meaningless. And it did make me think, you know, what if... What if that happened to gay culture? What if, uh, you know, it, it became so normalized and so much a part of the mainstream that its only kind of resonance in the culture was through a set of cliches? Uh, you know, I, as an, when I'm older, when that happens, I'll, I'll feel the sense of urgency for younger people to understand kind of where that came from, to have a, a deeper context for gay culture. And it, it made me appreciate, it to some extent, um, my Jewish heritage, not, not that I'm acting on it, but in a way um it it opened my consciousness. So I think I think there are a lot of people who are kind of reaping the benefits of assimilation but that inevitably it's a process of people reckoning with where they came from as 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 their culture becomes more diluted.
1: And then you know maybe referring to your movie teenager uh, in the sense that um We change over time like I I can remember being an 18 year old moving to San Francisco knowing women much 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 older than me I had no thought that they had been through something I hadn't and that I might be able to learn something Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and that came much later when I realized what I hadn't known then. If, if, you, if you will. And I think
2: for me, the whole looking back at the artists who uh, had died of AIDS, it's, a lot of it is, is kind of reacting to this idea that you can't talk to those kind of elders or those trailblazers. They're missing. Um, they're absent. And so mm. that, that really provoked a desire for me to do something with that absence, to look at it as, as not just a sense of loss, but also as material, actually things to make films and to tell stories about
1: so let's uh, we can get a start on this and then maybe continue after the break um, you're, uh, I didn't well let me put it this way Arthur Russell's music that was in your film sounded a little familiar to me mm-hmm. but I didn't I am a musician I didn't have his name in my head and I thought that film was so it, it really captured me. And I wondered if mm-hmm. you could talk about him in particular, because he was avant-garde. He was out of the box, if you want to put it that way. Um, he was himself so much. Yeah. And, and that film seems to capture what you're talking about. Can you share a bit about him and, and how you came to do that film and what it well, meant I, for you? I
2: started that film when I was about, Oh God, like 22 or 23 years old. So, the way I gravitated towards it was very intuitive. I didn't really have a project of what I do as a filmmaker. I was just kind of wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, had gone to film school, and you know, I was really listening to the music a lot, and and was not just connecting to the music. I was connecting to the story behind the musician and the intimacy of the music, and and that mystery of of who he was, and trying to feel close to that. And I remember just listening to the music in a car, thinking, this is this is what I care about right now. And those are really fundamental questions you ask yourself in your early 20s, especially if you want to make art. It's, what do do you make art about? And I was like, this is what I care about. So I started making that film, and then, strangely, it wasn't until much later in the process that I recognized this kind of connection to my interest in the artist, David Wanarovich who I had done a project on in college and who I continue to do projects about and started to see that there's this connection there between those two figures and what my relationship to them might be. And I think, I mean, so much of what I do is like, you know, I, I get an idea. Well, in the past, less so now I get an idea and I just get laser focused on it. And I, I go deep and hard into it, and then it's when it's done is when I have something more coherent to say about why. And uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the art, the Russell film, I think what interests me about him was that he had all these monikers. He made all of this different kind of music, from disco music to avant-garde cello music to folk music. Um, he crossed paths with Philip Glass and Allen Ginsberg. So, in in a lot of ways, he. Um, you know, he's emblematic of the cross-pollination of so many strands of culture in downtown New York in the 1970s and 80s. But for me, it was less about that art history and more about um, how he was so many different people, literally, through these different monikers and names. But that aren't we all so many different people? I, I, there's all sorts of parts of me that aren't going to be coherent uh, when I when I speak out loud or when I make something. When I make the most recent film, Byron, in me, that's not all I have to say. I have a lot of different things I want to say and a lot of different voices. And it's so rare that we're allowed to speak in all those voices. So... I think I learned that from Arthur that, that the boldest thing you can do is to allow yourself to be many different people, not just as an artist, but in the way that you engage in the world. Um,
1: in, in general, and which yeah, he did as well. Yeah, Let's come he back did, to but that. There's consequences.
2: Yeah. Like people don't necessarily yes. get you if you yes. are all these different people, and it only makes sense later, and sometimes it only makes sense after you're dead, unfortunately
1: very true we'll come back more to that after our break uh we're gonna have another another break now and uh listeners out there you can go to the good grief host page at voice america and there are links to everything about me on there and to find matt wolf go to mattwolf.info. dot info back after the break
3: real-life solutions voice america health and wellness
0: you are listening to good grief with cheryl jones to reach cheryl or her guest today please call 1-866-472-5792 that's 1-866-472-5792 you may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with the filmmaker Matt Wolf. And before the break, we were talking about uh, your film about Arthur Russell. Um, you want, might want to share the name of the film so that people can find it. Um, it's
2: called Wild but- Combination A Portrait of Arthur Russell. And it's available on iTunes and Amazon and Netflix and all those places.
1: And to me, uh, the the name of the film captures what we were talking about before the break in terms of uh, people not being one thing. Uh, that's so particularly true of him, I'd say, because you know, being a musician myself. The expectation is you're this kind of musician or you're that kind of musician or, you know, that you've really, and when people cross over, people who are famous cross over, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. If you are a country artist, I'm remembering when Katie Lang came out with a standards album, having been a country artist, and this was somehow a huge deal. I like Uh, that reference. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, we're supposed to pick one kind and do that forever, which isn't like any of the musicians I know in particular. That I most also, of I don't them even think
2: it's an art thing. I think, you know, people want to change careers. Somebody who is, you know, a um lawyer wants to be a therapist or, you know, um there's we we have friends who we wanna go out all night with and party with and then friends who we like to have breakfast with and they're totally different relationships. And it doesn't mean we're fragmented as people. It just means that we have a variety of needs and desires and impulses that, you know, are, are, can be many different people, you know?
1: And so that's, that's part, to look at it. That, maybe that's part of what's underneath, uh, you as a filmmaker is sort of, uh, capturing the, 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 uh, how do I want to put it? The authenticity of, of multiple ways of being a, yourself,
2: maybe. Yeah. I mean, I make projects that are not about myself, but are extensions of myself. I mean, everything I'm making is a projection into main character usually and um, you know so I, I didn't adopt I, I'm not in an intergenerational relationship and I didn't adopt my partner but you know I'm projecting onto that about my own relationship and you know um, I didn't record television 24 hours a day for 30 years like this woman Marion Stokes but I'm not going to deny I'm an obsessive crazy person <laughs> that's, that's,
1: that's you know, quite an admission uh, on international that's radio
2: that's a project <laughs> Um, so I think there's, there is this connection. And also, you know, I think there's people who make the same kind of film over and over again. And I really try to go in different directions to learn things I don't know and to try things I haven't tried before. And I, I'm sure to some people, these projects seem somewhat unrelated. But I, my hope is that in the end of my career or my life that people will see kind of meaningful lines of continuity because they're flowing through my brain. So, you know, that's, that's the point of intersection. Uh
1: Well, that's, that's um, wonderfully audacious to say, well, it's all connected because I made it all. And it, and it kind of intersects with, you know, my line of work. Um, I'm a counselor when I'm not being a radio host. And Mm -hmm. that to me is all about people becoming more and more themselves and everything yeah. they do coming out of that um be feeling like yourself when you're partying and feeling like yourself when you're um you know going to school or something that yeah, it's yeah, that it yeah. all feels like you in yeah. the end so I maybe agree. we could maybe we could talk a bit about where that goes from here for you what what kinds of projects are you interested in now uh i know the the bayard rustin film is pretty recent so you're probably still engaged in that being you know watched and uh i don't know if you uh have been asked by others to speak about it but i i find artists are always looking ahead to the next thing what what would you imagine the next thing to be
2: like Obsessively plotting it all out so I never stop being busy because then, you know, kind of meltdown. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, well, you know, I'm in the middle of this film about this woman named Marion Stokes who I mentioned recorded t- TV for 30 years. Um, and, you know, that film's in the later stages and, then there's some other projects I'm not allowed to talk about yet, because that's typically how it goes. But that's one intriguing. is a podcast and one is a mini series that I'll be developing. So, um, you know, they're all in the nonfiction realm. Uh, they all deal with the past. And, you know, some of them traffic in the same themes we've been talking about.
1: Let's talk about her for a minute, though, because it just struck me. I, I can't believe it didn't when you first said what that. That you were making a film about her. How do you even go about that? To to try to. I mean, you're not. You can't watch thirty years worth of film. Uh, so how did you go about kind of getting your arms around that? Um,
2: well, that's what I like to do: is to design. You know, is to take something impossible and to design a workflow to make it manageable. Um, Like, you know, like I mentioned, like trying to trace the history of the evolution of teenagers through archival footage across the globe. I mean, that's impossible, but I made a process for doing it. I love making a process. And so for this, it's like, I, it it is truly crazy what what we're doing too. But we had an army of volunteers, actually, and a small crew of people who, Photographed the spines of all the VHS tapes in all the filing boxes that Marion put them into, and then this army of volunteers um, logged all of the metadata on those VHS spines, handwritten by Marion, into a database. And then I went through. You know, Wikipedia has a summary of every year, um, and you know, of course, there's big events that are headliners, but then you know, people add weird idiosyncratic things that you wouldn't think of as being like the major greatest hits of those years so i went through every you know wikipedia page for every year kind of you know um, tagging different events that sounded visually interesting or seemed like something that would be interesting to see on tv it's a pretty it's a pretty big list and then what I do is give that list to the archive, archivist working on that database, and she would mark tapes that were in or around those dates. So I would get, this might be boring, but it's...
1: No, <laughs> it's interesting long. because, you know, that's, that's what a person outside doesn't know. How do, how do people creating out of the past actually decide where to go with it? I mean,
2: so, okay, here, I'll complete the whole crazy person process is like, (laughs) so I have this long list of tapes and then I, it costs money for me to transfer them. I actually work with a preservation company in the Bay Area. So I kind of prioritize and choose, um, my most highest priority tapes and it's about 40 and those tapes have between five and eight hours of footage of them on them each. So I get the tapes back and they correspond to specific dates, so I know what I'm looking for, and I work with an assistant. And basically, I scrub through an eight-hour tape as quickly as possible, like five times speed, and I hit a marker every time I see something that looks interesting. And the things I find that are interesting are not those big events I was looking for. Sure, I pull, you know, the day Elian Gonzalez is being, you know, ripped from his home, but the commercials and the PSAs or these, like, like weird human interest stories. Like that stuff ends up being more interesting. It ends up telling us more about who we are as a culture and how it's been relayed on television. So then this assistant pulls that stuff into selects and it's all organized by topics and by years and then my editor gets it. <laughs> so long story short, that's you design processes to make monumental things small. And the analogy I've used before is I I see a boulder like teenagers, or 30 years of television streamed, you know, and uh, my job is to take dynamite and to make it into a million little pieces, and then to come up with a process to organize those pieces, and then to put them together that has a new shape, so that the boulder like, you know, it's like, it's like a sculpture then. So that's, in essence, what I do in terms of working with archive.
1: So it occurs to me that having a what you're calling an obsessive mind, I guess I, we could call it an active mind or a busy mind too, um is really a a very useful skill for the way that you make films. Yeah, I these mean, kind way of I big big boulder like, uh, projects.
2: Yeah, the way I think about it is like no no, stu- no stone left unturned. Is that the truism that people say? I mean, yes. it's mm-hmm. kind of like I like to do my due diligence within reason, because I don't like to get bogged down in such a way that I don't complete things. So I figure out what doing my due diligence means. I do my best, you know, and I try to be thorough and rigorous in the way that I approach those processes. But I take great pleasure in designing my own process, and I struggle when people tell me what the process is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you need to make it make it your own. but it, it, that I also like involves a certain a certain trust in I'm not sure what to call it, but possibly fate that the things you end up seeing will be either the exact right things or good enough things or you know that um, you're exhaustive, but I, I'm guessing you still have to kind of let go of whatever you might not have seen.
2: Well, any documentary filmmaker will tell you, you know, whether they do archive films like I do or they do films in which you're filming like fly on the wall all day, you, you just, you just miss, you miss 90%, you know? It doesn't mean that the 10% you get isn't the best, but it's like you're gonna miss most, most of everything. You can't capture everything and it doesn't matter. You work with what you have. So I think that's like a bigger life lesson that has nothing to do with filmmaking is, you, you know, like, so much isn't going to work out or but also not just work out you, you you can't have everything you want and you work with what you've got and that's that's so true of filmmaking you know
1: and was that harder to come to terms with at the beginning of your career than now
2: mm, no because I didn't have the resources to get anything near what I wanted now I get more resources <laughs> so it <laughs> more feasible Maybe other to go all the way around. But, you know, now being a little more mature, I'm very interested in finishing things, getting them off my docket, but still doing doing a great job. So I, I try not to be precious. I think that's something I've really learned over the years is to not be so precious about what you do, but to still be rigorous in the way that you do it. I think it's a pretty delicate balance. It's also a necessity when you do this, when you make money doing this kind of stuff. You don't always have control over what you're doing.
1: Yes, and and that brings me to we only have a couple more minutes, but I just wanted to mention the the film you made, "The Face of AIDS, uh, because that was about uh, somebody, not you, um, using um, very deep footage for a purpose that they then got in trouble about (laughs) it just seemed worth mentioning that um, because I remember when that happened and all the controversy and now looking back it seems so impactful that that image made it into the world things can cut both ways can't they
2: Yeah, that film is about an image of a man dying of AIDS, which was used in a United Colors of Benetton advertisement that, you know, incited an international controversy. And I think I went into that film thinking that the ethics of using that photo were really kind of revolting. And I was surprised after making the film um, that people thought that that image was really impactful and that it was a good thing. And I I think what works about that film is the moral ambiguity around it, but also how our um, how looking back in time makes us see things differently and how, you know, understanding the impact of AIDS and the need for visibility and seeing where we're at today. I mean, you just have a different take on it. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's where I was at with that film.
1: And I think that that does um, send us forward into, um, you know, capturing things uh, itself, and and how um, how we see it differently over time. So we'll I'll have to check in with you in a few years here, and <laughs> we'll re talk about some of the same things. Thanks so much for being with me today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Listeners, next week I'll have Medium Floor to talk about how a medium who communicates with the dead views grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.